Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Griffiths, head of investment grade and macro strategy. Joining me for our discussion today is Simon Adamson, our global head of financials. Simon, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Zach. Good to be back here. Yeah, great to have you back. I think you and I recorded the first podcast I had done for our No More Risk Better revamp last year. So looking forward to another great discussion. I want to start by addressing the U.S. commercial real estate concerns and how you're thinking about it for some of your European banks. It's definitely a topic we get a lot of questions on here in the U.S. I know Jesse and Peter have done a lot of great work covering this, and they don't have huge concerns, in fact, remain overweight. The U.S. banks, how are you thinking about U.S. commercial real estate for the European banks, and and where does it stack up in terms of your key concerns for this year? Well, first, I think what we should address is the fact that commercial real estate disclosure is not really very good for for the European banks. I mean, I think it's improving. And I think because it is such a hot topic at the moment, banks are going to be sort of forced into providing more data. But, But with one or two exceptions, it's not great at the moment. And the disclosure on US commercial real estate is even more sparse. And I think one problem we have as well is that definitions vary a little bit here of what constitutes commercial real estate exposure. Uh, but if we if we sort of search through all that noise, I think typically commercial real estate exposure in total is about five to 10% of total loans at many banks. Some banks it's, it's lower than that, one or two it's higher than that. So it's fairly large, it's a fairly large chunk of the loan book, but it's not what I would call a dominant uh, risk on there. And as you would expect, the US part of it is is actually pretty small. You know, in this sort of business, banks tend to focus on their home markets. Certainly, as far as the market's concerned and investors are concerned, US commercial real estate is the main focus uh, at the moment. I mean, we are certainly seeing some weaknesses in European commercial real estate markets, but I wouldn't say it's particularly problematic for the banks at the moment. Uh, what we've seen in the US is certainly very high vacancy rates in the in the office sector and and price falls. And just for now, that does seem weaker than in Europe, although that may be just a timing issue. So of the major banks, only really Deutsche Bank and Santander have uh, what you might call material commercial real estate exposure in the US, but I don't think it's on a scale that is going to damage either of them. Uh, Deutsche is unusual in that just over half of its commercial real estate exposure is in the US. That's about 17 billion euros. Uh, So that's about three and a half percent of its total loan book. And the office sector is just about 40 percent of that. So that's about seven billion euros. But that did account for quite a lot of its impairments uh, last year 
on commercial real estate and, and, and at group level as well. So it's something that we're monitoring. It's certainly something that is causing some problems for Deutsche Bank, but it's, it, it's, it's nothing that is really very damaging uh, at the moment. Uh, as far as Santander is concerned, they have about $20 billion of US commercial real estate exposure, but most of that is in the multifamily sector, which isn't causing so many concerns just at the moment. And their office exposure is only about $2 billion. That's fairly small. Uh, for Santander. I say the one caveat I would have is that there are clearly some regional banks and some smaller, more specialized banks in Europe that are feeling more strain at the moment. Uh, we've seen particularly the likes of Deutsche Handbrief Bank, you know, the share price, the bond prices have been falling quite steeply because they do have a disproportionately large exposure to, to US commercial real estate. And, and some of the regional banks are also a bit more exposed. We saw the uh, Austrian property company, Signa, for example, uh, getting into trouble and and the lenders there seem to be mainly smaller banks in in Austria in Germany and in, in in Switzerland so there are parts of the market that are maybe under more pressure at the moment but for the major banks the banks that we cover matching what what Jesse and Peter are saying with the US banks we don't see this as a as a big problem at the moment and just as a quick follow up to that financial spreads have been wide for the past year following regional bank concerns and the collapse of Credit Suisse into UBS. Do you get the sense that US CRE concerns, even though maybe they're not fundamentally a huge issue for these banks, are, are causing an overhang in terms of, of wider spreads, creating an opportunity there? Or do you think maybe that's more or less accurately reflected in where spreads are today? I'd say the market is a little bit uh, nervous, a little bit fragile at the moment. And, and you know, certainly a couple of weeks ago when we started to get a lot of it, uh, focus on, on U.S. commercial real estate, uh, obviously New York Community Bank was the main uh, spark for that. Certainly we saw spreads widen out a bit on Deutsche Bank, not so much on any of the other major banks, but they've pretty much come back in. So I would say now that, you know, the market generally is reasonably comfortable with banks' exposure, with the exceptions of those smaller, more specialized banks I talked about. And I would say, no, it's not really a big influence at the moment on, on spreads, even for Deutsche Bank. Okay, great. So that's helpful framing up the exposure for DB and Santander a little bit chunky, especially for DB on the office side, but but not a huge issue in your view right now looking ahead. I know you've had a bunch of earnings. I think this week it's been more focused on the UK banks. Take us through some of your key takeaways from the banks that have reported so far. Yeah, we've had most of the European banks reporting now, a few stragglers to come in the next couple of weeks. But results have been um, pretty much in line, actually, with expectations, very few surprises. And as a result, credit spreads have been uh, pretty stable um, on the back of those results. We've seen some mixed reaction in the equity market, but that's mainly really on the back of, of uh, share buybacks. You know, banks are looking to uh, ramp up distributions to shareholders. And, you know, a lot of the share price action has been on the basis of whether buybacks have been either smaller or bigger than, than, than expected. As far as the fundamentals are concerned, I mean, we did see a big jump in profitability uh, you, yeah, at the European banks last year. Uh, we haven't run all the numbers yet, but I think probably the, the return on equity is going to average out at around 11%, which is much higher than it has been for a long time. And, and obviously, that's on the back of, of higher income, which is related to to the hikes in interest rate that we saw last year and, and the improvements to banks' interest margins on the back of that. Costs have been flattish, maybe slightly up. 
Obviously, we saw higher inflation last year, which has offset sort of the cost-cutting programs that banks have. And asset quality maybe actually, surprisingly, has been pretty stable. You know, we've not really seen any material increase in stage three loans, which is the non-performing loans. The loan impairment charges have generally still been below the through the cycle average. So we're not really seeing any particular evidence of asset quality deterioration, despite all the gloom and doom about, you know, stagnant economies, cost of living crises, certain sectors like commercial real estate getting into trouble, for example. So, you know, that that has been a positive aspect. Capital ratios are stable, despite uh, those higher distributions I was talking about. Uh, But I think banks are trying to sort of get that balance right between looking after equity and bondholders. And and I think, you know, banks are managing down their capital ratios over the next few years as they increase buybacks and dividends. So overall, I would say outlooks maybe slightly downbeat, a little bit cautious, but that's pretty much as we expected. You know, the benefits to interest margins are fading as the cost of funding goes up, you know, and banks are having to pass through more of those interest rate rises to their depositors. Some potential increases in loan impairments, I think, uh, as expected. Obviously, that could be commercial real estate. It could be other sectors. Uh, And all that points to slightly lower profits, maybe slightly weaker asset quality, uh, perhaps some declining in capital. But I would say the overall picture actually is, is pretty stable at the moment. That's very helpful, just kind of framing up what we're hearing from the banks from the last quarter of 2023. And I'm glad you kind of point out the the benefits of interest margins are fading. This is a topic that came up chatting with Jesse and Peter, just thinking about how betas tend to rise later in the cycle. And so I wanted to get your views, how you think about the potential impact of ECB and Bank of England, really a bunch of major global central banks considering rate cuts this year How do you expect that to impact profitability, assuming that it comes to fruition more or less as expected? Let's just call it around the middle of this year. I think it's probably a pretty similar picture to, as you say, what Jesse and Peter are seeing in in, in the US. I think, you know, obviously for US banks, you have have had some concerns about March market losses on, on their investment portfolios. That's not so much a concern in Europe. The European banks tend to have a smaller proportion of sort of uh, unhedged fixed rate uh, securities on their balance sheet. I wouldn't say that was a big factor, but certainly lower interest rates is probably going to be negative for interest margins, maybe with the exception of France, where the French banks haven't yet seen, because of the nature of their balance sheets, haven't yet seen the big uh, improvement from the the rate hikes. But I think in in general, banks in Europe tend to have quite big structural hedges, and that will limit the downside, and that will mean that you know, in a declining rate environment, they should still be able to keep interest income um, uh, pretty high. The other side of the coin is this, in theory, could be positive for asset quality in the sense that we know that there are some sectors that are potentially sensitive to the rise in interest rates, uh, which maybe hasn't really come through yet. Obviously, commercial real estate we've talked about, maybe, you know, repricing of mortgage lending, some of the small businesses as well. So if we do start to see falls in interest rates in the second half this year, that might help avert some of those problems that otherwise would, would have come through uh, as we as we go on through the year. It's interesting. I remember when we were focusing on rates rising last year so rapidly and the larger portion of floating rate mortgages in, in the UK and Europe. How are you thinking about that from a, a more macro perspective? And perhaps this is a question I should be either asking myself or Logan, but you know, if we have 
call it 75 basis points of rate cuts between both the Bank of England and ECB next year. Is Do you think that'll be a big boon for consumers across the pond or is it more or less, you know, is, is a move of that magnitude not going to, to move the needle so much from your perspective? I think it is important in terms of banks lending business. And I think we are starting to see in anticipation of those rates coming down. We are starting to see perhaps uh, more healthy housing markets. We're starting to see uh, loan demand picking up a bit. So I think it is it is a positive from that point of view. I think it's, you know, the, the, the split between fixed rate and floating rate mortgages varies quite a lot across Europe. And it's a, it's a common misconception that most are, flo- are floating rate. That used to be the case, certainly in the UK. It's no longer, I think, you know, something like 85% of mortgages in the UK are now um, fixed rate. But in, in many countries, such as the UK, those fixed rates are fairly short term, so between two and five years. So what we're seeing is a gradual repricing of fixed rate mortgages. So you don't get the immediate shock as you would with a, with a variable rate mortgage of rates going up, but it sort of gradually works through the system. So far, consumers seem to have coped pretty well with that. You know, We've not seen any noticeable increase in arrears or delinquencies on, on mortgages in, in any of the European countries, really. So I think that you know it may well be that borrowers are cutting back on other areas of discretionary spending if they're getting squeezed on their mortgage rates. But it's it's not been very visible so far. So I think net-net, yeah, the, the rates coming down will be certainly be a benefit to housing markets generally. And I think you're likely to see mortgage lending starting to pick up as we go through the year. That's great. I appreciate the clarification. Clearly, I learned something. I was aware that they are generally shorter in turn, but I didn't quite appreciate that they're actually they're fixed rate mortgages with shorter terms. And so that repricing, depending on whenever the consumer last took out the mortgages, is going to impact just how quickly the rate cuts and, and potential future, or excuse me, the rate hikes and potential future rate cuts impact those borrowers. Yeah, that's right. And I think it does vary a lot across Europe. I mean, for example, in the UK, it tends to be quite short term and get about 20% of mortgages repriced every year as a result of that. In a country like France, they are generally generally long-term fixed rate mortgages, which is why, you know, you don't really see much effect on the mortgage market from rate changes in France because, you know, it takes a much longer time for those to really affect uh, what's going on because of those longer term fixed mortgages. So, you know, it depends which country you're looking at. It It does vary a lot across Europe. Definitely. You know, over in the US, we have the, the problem of lumping every, you know, the European Union into into one big group. And that's obviously a, a vast oversimplification, kind of like the U.S. commercial real estate market lumping in, you know, office with multifamily. That's really not the right way to look at it. Um, so just shifting gears a little bit, I'd say it's been a strong start to the year for financial markets. Credit spreads have tightened in across Europe and the U.S. Primary markets have certainly been robust so far as well in terms of supply and demand. What are your expectations in terms of issuance for the European banks and how how does that fit into your recommendation for the sector? Well, you know, for banks, uh, supply is actually fairly predictable, especially for what what we would call the MREL eligible debt, which is non-preferred senior or whole co-senior and tier two and 81. That's really 
regulatory driven and therefore it's mostly refinancing and and you know you can usually predict pretty accurately where supply is going to be of the banks that we track we saw uh, around 350 billion euros of supply in total in 2023 our prediction at the beginning of this year when we did the outlook was for about 335 billion so slightly down on 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 last year and and within that we thought 81s would be about 35 billion but the bulk is in in sub-senior, which is non-preferred or holco senior, at about 150 billion. Now, as you say, it's been a very busy start to the year, as it often is. We've seen a lot of issuance. We've seen some big order books. We've seen deals coming 30 to 50 bips inside initial price talks. So it looks like a pretty a pretty good market and and a lot of demand out there. Having said that, I think you know most banks have been giving some indications of their funding plans for this year when they've released their results, and most of them appear to be either sort of flat or down a bit on last year. So that that gives us confidence that our overall sector recommendation is is in terms of our predictions in terms of issuance are looking about right at, at this point. Now, in terms of recommendations, when we do try and take you know predicted supply into Account. I don't think it's as big a factor as maybe in some corporate sectors, simply because you know banks can absorb large amounts of issuance and they are regular issuers and, and, and therefore that's normal in the market. Um, I guess the only place really where perhaps we factor that in a bit more is in senior debt. So that's the preferred senior and, and DOCO senior debt. We've got that outperform at the moment, um, mainly because we thought the spread multiple versus the sub-senior was too tight. And I think that the reason for that mainly is because there was a huge amount of supply in senior last year for various reasons. I mean, partly because we saw some outflows of deposits, partly because, you know, some repayments of central bank facilities. So, you know, I think that did affect spreads in senior. And and I think, therefore, we think issuance is going to be lower this year, and that should help a little bit on that. So that's maybe the one area where we factor it in a little bit more at the moment. Great. That's really helpful. And it has been, you know, I think it's a the year typically starts out on a busy foot in terms of, of issuance. And I think we were expecting pretty robust technicals in terms of plenty of cash still out there to be put to work, but have been so far pleasantly surprised in just how much demand there's been even for some of this longer duration paper. So I want to get your perspective on relative value, looking at you know our euro investment grade relative value monitor from February. Senior banks and sub senior banks generally still look cheap, as you kind of have a lingering overhang from the ructions of last year. While subordinated bank debt now screens as fair. Do you see room for further tightening against the overall index, or are you seeing this year from a broad financials perspective? And of course, we can kind of go through the subcategories in a little bit more detail. But are you seeing this more as as a carry trade year versus looking for incremental spread? tightening? Uh, well, I think I'd agree that senior, that, that's preferred senior and opera senior, uh, looks cheap at the moment. Um, and we do think that is the area we might see some more spread tightening. Um, as, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I think the spread multiple versus sub-senior for various reasons looked a bit tight at the end of the year. In fact, it was uh, the only part, the only sort of segment within the capital structure that we look at that was wider at the end of last year than it was at the end of 2022. So I think there is some room for tightening there. Yeah, I mean, you might say that's more on technical grounds than on credit grounds, but but nonetheless, I think that that is that is why we're outperforming on that. I think actually to us, sub-senior and tier two look uh, pretty much fair value at the moment. I think they, they are going to perform okay this year. 
The other area that we are um, outperform on is 81. So we've got a sort of barbell recommendation on that, outperform on senior and 81s, market performance, sub-senior in tier two. We moved to outperform on 81s um, the second half of last year after the market started to settle down a bit after the Credit Suisse write-downs. And we have seen some quite good tightening in that sector uh, since the, the fourth quarter of last year. And there have been a lot of uh, new issuance which have gone very successfully. So I think you know a lot of that tightening has probably happened now. We think there is still some room for tightening there, but maybe milder than it was a few months ago. And you know I don't think we're likely to see as good excess returns uh, this year as we did in 2023. But we still like 81 paper issued by the stronger and the larger banks. We still think you're getting good yields, good spreads on um, on that paper. So I think that's you know we're, we're keeping an outperform for now. I think the one thing to look out for in 81s is still extension risk. Now that can really distort pricing a lot, as we saw last year. I think that risk is fading a bit, at least as far as the market's concerned. You know we've had 10 81s come to a first call this year and so far all of them have been redeemed. So I think the market is getting more confident again in banks calling these bonds and that. You know that helps for the pricing as well, and I and I think that helps on the uh, on the outperform that we got. Great, yes, I remember at our 2023 outlook conference, extension was was a huge focus, and and that seems to be shifting as some of the other macro trends have shifted over the past year. Simon, before I let you go, I know you've been on the road seeing clients over the past couple of weeks. Any interesting takeaways, anything we haven't covered so far that was a hot topic in any of these meetings that you'd think would be helpful for our listeners? Um, not particularly. I think I think it's all the same sort of stuff that we've been talking about today. I mean, we did, you know, we've done roundtables in Frankfurt and Paris. We've had uh, meetings in the Netherlands uh, and in Italy and in the UK. And I think, you know, we're we're seeing some quite positive feedback in terms of how people are looking at the banking sector. You know, whenever we've done around the table sort of surveys on on whether people are positive, neutral, or negative on the sector, almost everyone is either positive or neutral. So I think you know that there is, uh, which which makes me a little bit nervous, maybe because normally when you have consensus like that, then that is the time that something something will go wrong. But I think no, I think I think uh, the sort of things that as as you would expect that people are looking at is stuff like uh, potential asset quality problems on areas like commercial real estate. But I think otherwise, there's very little for people to worry about apart from the usual stuff, which is very difficult to predict, like geopolitical stuff, you know, what happens with Russia, what happens in China, that sort of thing. So I think that is that is difficult. One or two people have mentioned the fact that we do have a lot of uh, elections coming up this year in major countries. Uh, including the US, the UK, and others, and 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 France, and and you know, again, the consensus seems to be that that isn't really something that should directly affect the banks. But I think it's it's adding to this uh, view that there is. Um, you know, some uncertainty still in the market as we go into this year. Otherwise, I think people are aware that the backdrop isn't that great for banks in the sense that economies are stagnating or even moving into recession. And that generally has not been a very productive backdrop for, for, for banks to operate in. However, I think, you know, the key element there is that unemployment remains very low in certainly across Europe and, and obviously in the US as well. And that really, I think, has protected the banks from, from some of the problems that they may have seen in that environment. So I think overall, yeah, people, are, uh, uh, investors seem pretty positive about the market. We've had the same exact discussions here in the U.S. recently. It's starting to feel like things 
could be a little bit too good to be true. But in terms of pointing out that specific catalyst to widen out spreads and cause sustained issues in financial markets, it's a little hard to identify, especially with all the cash on the sidelines. I think once we get to the middle of this year, some of the election concerns certainly in the U.S. will start to heat up. Could it? add to some volatility in the market. But so far, spreads have have been strong. And we do think certainly a big technical tailwind if all of that cash at the front end starts to move out either duration or credit curves or both. So Simon, this was a great discussion. As always, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm sure we will catch up again later this year. Hopefully things do not prove to have been too good to be true, but we'll be keeping an eye on the markets and we'll keep our listeners updated. So thanks again to Simon Adamson, our global head of financials. And thank you all for tuning in to this episode of No More Risk Better. We'll catch you next time. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates. Thank you.